0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York, boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from VisitIthaca.com.
2: Hi, this is Lisa Held, host of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I record my show because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories about how your food is produced. At this critical moment in time, stories about how and what we eat are more important than ever. I am so honored to be a part of the HRN community of hosts telling those stories. Whether that means hearing from farmers about using soil health to sequester carbon, giving marginalized groups a voice in the industry, or just bringing people together over a good meal. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting the farm report in the designation drop down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today I'm talking to Meriwether Hardy, the Chief of Staff for Biological Capital, where her work focuses on developing new models for regenerative agriculture, renewable energy, and climate-positive land use. Meriwether, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thanks, Lisa. I'm really excited to be here today with you.
2: Um, And you're based in Colorado, is that right?
3: I am based in Colorado, so I'm calling you from my home, actually in Boulder. Our offices are in Denver, but we work all across the U.S., so I spend a lot of time between uh, our offices and with my hands in soil with farmers.
2: Amazing. Um, And so I want to talk to you a lot about that work that you do. Um, Before we get into that, I'd love to get a little background on how you got into this work. Uh, I saw a very cute picture of you as a little girl um, with your first beehive, I think it was. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's true. So when I was six years old, I got my first official pet, and it was a very big deal because I had to take care of it all by myself. And it was a beehive because my father, my for my whole childhood into my adulthood, was a commercial beekeeper. And so that was an important part of my kind of growing up and learning about agriculture and where our food comes from. And bees to this day fascinate me, and they are incredible creatures and have taught me so much about the world that we live in. And they are an indicator of our the health of our ecosystem. And I could go on and on about bees, but yes, that was my first official uh, pet when I was a little girl. And so growing up in Vermont. I grew up on a farm. And I saw how hard my family and those around me worked. And all my first jobs were in agriculture. And I'm happiest when I'm outside and with my hands in soil. But also at a very young age, I saw how broken our system is. And if my family and those around me can work so hard in agriculture, but still struggle to make a living, I knew that that something was wrong. And I wanted to, in my career, go out and work on tools and ways that we can help change the system and change the different economic models of how we grow food and how we value food and how we access food. And so that kind of started me on a journey of working in different places in the food system, uh, which brought me here today to Biological Capital.
2: Right. And what are some of the other places in the food system that you worked before getting to Biological Capital?
3: So I've worked on many different farms and for different uh, food companies, but one of the my past jobs that I'm most proud of and I learned so much from is that I worked for the Rainforest Alliance, which is a global certification organization that works with small-scale farmers all around the world. Mm. And with that organization, I traveled all around the world working with farmers on challenges to certification and working on grassroots solutions. For example, right now, there is a huge disease-sweeping coffee plants all across the globe, particularly in Central America. It's called La Roya. And if farmers sprayed the kind of easiest-to-access pesticide for that rust, coffee rust, they would lose their certification. So a lot of what I was doing was working on how and where were farmers succeeding and finding solutions that allowed them to the certification and do a more natural form of pest management and trying to then spread that through storytelling and workshops and through information sharing. And uh, Rainforest Alliance does incredible work. They're the green frog with a seal on it that you see on coffee and chocolate and flowers and many other different food products. Right. Uh, and it was for me a really important part of my own education. Because their philosophy is we can't ask farmers to take care of their land or expect them to take care of their land or to not cut down trees or other forms of short kind of gaining short term capital if they can't put food on their table, so how can we help farmers be better business people so that they can help think about longer term the health of their land and really work to pass it down to future generations
2: right and that's that's i mean I might have to have a whole other conversation with you sometime about, um, Rainforest Alliance. Cause it's funny. I, you know, I've seen that seal and I don't know a lot about it. And it, it does seem to be a little, um, less well-known compared to, you know, say organic or, um, even fair trade. Um, and it sounds like, um, a really, some really incredible work they're doing. So another time we'll get into that. Another but, time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I want to talk to you about more about what you're doing now. Um, so, biological capital. Um, What does the company do? Can you give us a little bit of an overview?
3: Yes. So we are a land use and land investment company, and that means that we design and implement regenerative versus extractive land use models for how we grow our food, how we get our energy, how we build human habitat, and how we protect land. And if you look back at our industrial evolution It was really focused on extractive land use models, so build as quick as you can and as cheap as you can. And in agriculture, that was, of course, monoculture. Mm -hmm. So specialize in one crop, grow as much of that crop as possible year after year. And our culture is still pretty addicted to these extractive models, yet as we demand greater yields for the land without replenishing the nutrients we extract, we're, of course, now seeing the impact of these actions. And so biological capital is really focused on putting more into the land than we take out. And making a profit while doing so, so that the models that that we're using are scalable and viable. And for me, for working in the nonprofit world for many years, I so dearly believe and the, and in the importance of the tools that the nonprofit world brings us. But I also grew pretty disheartened of just looking at how fat what a food crisis we are in and how most of the world is not aware of it yet. And so I wanted to work from a different sector to see how could I scale faster and work with tools and really work on the economic model of, for me, my personal passion of regenerative agriculture. And so Biological Capital, we have some case study projects that we've chosen very carefully across the U.S. in areas where we saw great potential to create a holistic a fully integrated regenerative agriculture operation and where we knew that we could work to prove the model of the kind of return on investment of regenerative agriculture. And what we are now moving from, kind of from our first couple years of founding to investing in those case study projects, uh, we're now in this really exciting chapter where I am looking for land for us here in Colorado, our home base to do a project that involves a much greater scale and involves many more farmers and really looking at how do we now share the work that we've done in the learnings and really take it to an economy of scale. So for us, that's not a monoculture, not just scaling one farm, but doing a model that includes many different producers.
2: Okay. Um, can you give an example of one of those case studies that you worked on? Like, What does this kind of work actually look like at the farm level?
3: Yes. So in Vermont and in the Northeast, we've done a lot of different work with dairy farms. And in particular, we have a project called Filer Ridge Farm in Vermont, where we're working to help transition a conventional dairy farm into a fully diversified, integrated, and what we call unscaled agriculture operation. And at that project, where we've now been working for five or so years – We now have, we grow we have pigs and chickens and cattle and turkeys and uh, uh, several different acres of vegetables, and we have renovated some of the old barns on the property and now have a commercial kitchen, a processing facility, we use a local mobile slaughter facility, we have a butcher on site, and so when you come there, you can buy groceries or you can buy a value-added product in the market or you can take a sandwich to go home with you or you can sit down for a soup. And if we take one of our beef cows at that project and we sell it wholesale, we earn about a tenth of the value than if we take that same cow and slaughter it on the farm, process it in our butchering facility, and then use every piece of meat from nose to tail to turn it into a number of value-added products from bone broth and soup and sandwiches to raw cuts of meat that we sell in the deli case. Mm -hmm. We, we earn, we earn and generate 10 times the revenue. So in that case is an example of what we're trying to do where we control the market. We control the prices. We're going direct to consumer. And that, that the ability to do that takes upfront capital, which many farmers, of course, do not have access to. So one of the goals of that project was, was to show that with that upfront capital, with that investment at the farm level, that that farmer can then generate that increased return. And for us right now, we are still in the process of measuring how long does it take to, therefore, earn that return on investment. Another right. example from that project is that it, uh, again, was a conventional dairy farm and grew, um, therefore, corn for many years in a row. And so the soil was quite compacted uh, when we began working on the land. And with the holistic grazing plan that we've implemented we are seeing really, really dramatic changes in the health of the soil and also the ability of the soil to retain water. And so for example, we have a 50 acre study pasture where we're working closely with the University of Vermont to measure the changes in soil health. And we're seeing that over the last couple of years, that study pasture now holds two million more gallons of water. And so, what that means is that that soil and that land is more resilient. So, when we go through times of drought, uh, we have more reserve. Right. And um, so, that's just another exciting kind of example of from that from that project.
2: Right. Yeah, I know that that's that's really interesting. And um, the the economic model. I mean, you know, you mentioned even with your work with Rainforest Alliance, it's sort of focusing on how how this works um, economically for the farmer and um, the fact that they're making 10 times the revenue is incredible, um, but obviously it does require so much upfront capital to, to um, get a project like this going. Where is that investment coming from? And, you know, in terms of like creating a model like this, will other farmers have access to that kind of capital?
3: So we finance our projects like many other small startup businesses with private investors and, when we raise capital to work in a new landscape, we, we find the right fit investors for that landscape who fit with our goals. And we create a unique financial framework that fits the environmental, social, economic goals of all the parties. And we, we are not a registered investment right now. We hope to evolve our model to have a publicly traded fund or other investment vehicles that anyone can buy into. Uh, in the future. And I think we're a couple years away from that still, because right now what we've really been focused on is those case study projects and proving the model. And now this next step is to do a much larger scale project that benefits uh, a much larger group of farmers in more of a co-op style. And so um, uh, our kind of, if you think of for example, uh, or the real estate investment trust that were created in the seventies mm-hmm. to create a real estate vehicle that anyone could invest into at any investment level. We want to pioneer a similar model for regenerative agriculture. And right now there are some really great groups alongside us working on different forms of how do we get more investment to farmers and to support regenerative agriculture and I, you know, the field right now is still a very new field. And so there's not a very established way of doing that. And so our approach to do that was to prove our model and then to kind of expand um, how that capital is accessed and how we raise funds and who contributes.
2: Right. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating realm. You know, I, I think about this a lot. There's, there's a lot of companies now doing impact investing and, um, you know, sort of putting their money in this place where they want to help small farms or regenerate soil. But I also just see so much capital going into um, commodity farmland and then especially like ag tech operations, like the huge hydroponic farms that um, can sort of pump out leafy greens in a controlled environment um, very quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, like can investment um, operations like biological capital make an impact compared to how much money is being invested in other parts of the food system
3: so I I think we have a long way to go but yes I very much believe so mm-hmm. and I think that, that part of that is that we we can't be doing this one landscape at a time or one farmer at a time and I think that that's where the working with many groups of farmers and also for us I believe that in the future our most successful kind of um, metric is if other people are copying what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the only group doing these types of projects, but I want to continue to be able to share what we're learning, the mistakes we make, the successes, and share the different metrics that we're using. Because I hope that and I believe that we will get to a point where this this case is so obvious, especially in terms of different environmental and social health of the, these different projects, that. Uh, many different people are adapting and that it's the new normal, but we have quite a bit of work to do to get there. And I think you're right of just thinking about, yes, there's a lot of, uh, funding right now going into large scale conventional ag, but, but those projects are also, unfortunately, just for the people who are behind them, they're failing. They're, mm. the, the yields of those projects are declining. Uh, we're losing biodiversity. The food quality and nutrition is declining. There, there's a stat that there's as much iron in a single apple in our grandparents' era, as there is in three apples today, and there's, right. there's more and more good data on showing the link between regenerative ag and nutrition, and we're doing a lot of work along that to help show the business case, and so I think that there's a lot of studies and support that will continue to come out of looking at the definition of regenerative ag and how do we quantify that and reward and incentivize and support the farmer in order to transition.
2: Right. And so do you think it's um, when you're making a case to investors for this kind of project, is it more about convincing them that actually maybe this makes more business sense in the long term? Or is it you're just, you know, going to investors who are looking to invest in projects that have a beneficial impact on um, the food system and the planet?
3: Right Right now we work with both types of investors, but mm. I would say that everyone we work with really adamantly believes in supporting a different model of food and agriculture. And so what you said on your first point of, yes, very much so, one of our talking points is that this type of farming is more resilient and, and actually more secure and less risky, and it takes investment in order to help the farmer get there, uh, but that there's very much, it's a very clear business case for us, But right now, with the size that we are at and the types of investors that we choose to work with, we are very much working with very progressive uh, investors who really also believe at the bigger picture of the need for this work. And one thing that does excite me is that the market is still forming, but there are a lot of people that are really interested in supporting regenerative agriculture and that don't know how. And that's why I think also putting together these different vehicles and funds is going to be really important so that people can support and participate at different levels, especially as the business case becomes more and more clear.
2: Right. Okay. Um, We have to take a quick break. Um, When we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the concept of scale um, and then also um, get into um, what you'll be talking about at Slow Food Nations this month. Uh, We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry, Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today.
2: All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. Uh, This is Lisa Held, and I'm here with Meriwether Hardy from Biological Capital. Um so before the break, um you said the word scale a few times. <laughs> um mm-hmm. and I think you know when we talk about food, we hear constantly and business in general, we hear constantly about scaling up in terms of making a business economically viable and also, you know, in terms of quote unquote feeding the world. Um it's interesting, Meriwether, because I, I heard you say that you're st- trying to scale your model. But then I also heard you say that when you were talking about the Philo Ridge project, that it's an unscaled project. And I've heard you talk about unscaling the food system. So can you just unpack a little bit how you're thinking about scale?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Lisa. And I think I do use scale in a number of different ways because uh, it's a really important part of our work and, when, when I look at our current agriculture, it's really a commodity game, and mm. large-scale commodity farmers are really commodity traders and really forced into market prices and don't have control of, of, of the price that they're getting. And so our research shows, and our belief is, that small-scale and medium producers have the great, greatest likelihood of being sustainable, both environmentally and socially, and it's for a number of reasons, including that Many small-scale operations still farm the way they did 100 years ago. They have less resources. They have to be more efficient with crop Mm. planning and less machinery, less use of oil, um, more plant and and crop diversity. And it's also, and this is, I think, a really key point: it's easier for small-scale farmers to innovate. Large-scale farmers are locked into their farming systems by debt and the commodity market. And also, that small and mid-sized operations tend to be more regional. So. Uh, they they negotiate prices with their customers in restaurants, retail, or institutions. Uh, where large farms are typically less diverse, operate globally, make millions selling to processors or brokers or distributors. And so, I also don't want to romanticize that small scale farming is easier because it's it's harder to get a loan. It's hard to scale your operation from small to medium. Right. It's really hard, especially today. In to pass it down to future generations or to have more than one family member perhaps making a full time living on that operation. So it's also really challenging. And so for us, the idea of scale is to work with many small scale producers. And an example that I like to give is that if you, if you live in Silicon Valley and Mm -hmm. you have an idea for an app, there are a number of different places that you can go to give a pitch. And depending on your pitch, those different places will help you put together a more formal deck and help you find investment. And there's all these incubators and accelerators that when you have a good idea, there's a lot of support. Okay. We don't have anything like that for agriculture and the ability to create a incubator or accelerator for regenerative agriculture where you're working in a community of people and either you're, uh, have a new idea for a value added crop, but you don't have the, technical skills or the investment or the marketing communication skills, that you're working with this network of people to support you to, to make that idea into reality, um, for me is a really compelling part of thinking about why to bring together many small producers or, for example, if you're living in a community where, where is that, there is that network, you can grow the raw product but then sell it directly to someone else in the community who perhaps has the expertise or the interest to take that product further up the value chain. Right. So, so scale is about, for me, the importance of supporting healthy practices and a diversity of different producers in order to get to that larger scale.
2: Got it. And I mean, it sounds like, you know, when you talk about the efficiencies of small and medium sized farms and, um, how they can innovate. It, it sounds like you're saying at the farm level that scale is not necessary to make an operation economically viable in your opinion.
3: Yes. I think, I think that increasing just the growing of one crop is not, is not the type of scale that we're talking about in right. order to increase the economic viability of that production. To me, we we have uh, a diagram that we've created that we use in a lot of our communications that we we call the food pyramid. Where there's three different levels, three different tiers. At the very bottom level is if you're growing a raw commodity crop in a perfect year where there's great weather, the the markets are stable, you earn about a four to six percent return on that on that crop. Okay. It's very hard to make a living on that. Obviously, as you move further up. The triangle, you go into more of the product aggregation and different kind of washing and packing, cold storage, sales, brokerage, distribution, you earn about a 10% return if you are working in that kind of section of the food pyramid. Right. As you go to the top of the food pyramid with the value-added products, and it's really where where the different groups who directly touch the consumer, so whether it's a market or a restaurant, you earn about a 20 to 25% return. And so what our projects try to do is to vertically integrate and to bring all those different levels of the pyramid onto one landscape. So that either a single farmer is growing the product and then taking it up the value chain and selling directly to consumers or a restaurant or that that there are multiple people, multiple stakeholders involved in that same project where one person is growing it but another person is uh, putting it into a value-added product or creating a, a restaurant,
2: right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Capture all that
3: value. Yeah, yeah. they're
2: just ca- essentially allowing the farmer to capture way more of yeah. the food dollar.
3: And then again, it goes back to the question of, or the the issue of, it takes investment in order to have the infrastructure to vertically integrate and allow allow all those kind of to cut out the different middlemen, middle women, and do that all in one landscape.
2: Yeah. And how did you, how did you find like the projects that you've worked on so far, did people come to you or did you identify projects that would, would work really well to transition like this? Like, you know, you mentioned the dairy farm in Vermont and I know you've done some work in Hawaii. Like, how did you decide like, okay, this is a, a place where this would work really well as a case study?
3: We had, we had to initially be careful about where we, where we put our Uh, our initial investment and time and energy and passion. And we chose ecosystems that we knew could produce uh, food and that had clear markets, but that for different reasons also had major challenges. So dairy farming, particularly in the Northeast, is really struggling. That was a very both compelling uh, case for us, but also one that felt really important to be part of and be helping find solutions to. And also, for example, in Vermont, you have a very clear market of people really support local food. And you also have the nearby markets of Boston and New York, which help drive the agriculture community of the Northeast. In Hawaii, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have this perfect growing climate um, that you can grow all year round. And, of course, that comes with a number of pests. But there's all these other challenges where Hawaii right now imports over 85 percent of their food. So if they were cut off from the mainland for over 10 days, uh, they would start to really struggle with food security. And so, again, it felt like a really compelling case for us to work on solving. And then given a number of different challenges, yet also opportunities of the perfect growing climate, Felt like another good place for us to put our initial efforts, and uh, important also biological ecosystem for us to be part of. Where Hawaii, uh, of course, has this unique climate that it's a a semi-tropical climate in the U.S. Yeah. Um, And so we we have, and then we we've done work in other places across the U.S., but those have been two of our initial focus areas. And I'm now turning our attention to trying to do some more work in Colorado. But it's, it, it's more of a challenge because we have a short growing season. We have hail mm. on each side of the growing season. We just, uh, we just got hail last week. It was July 4th. And we, we're working on a rooftop farm project here in Denver right now. And the hail ruined a lot of the, the crops that we have.
2: Wow. And so
3: it's, it's, a, it's a challenging environmental place to work. And water is also an issue. But to me, it's also a, it's very important for us to be working in our home state, and our backyard. And now that we've kind of built up more capacity and some more years of experience, uh, I feel ready to, to work and jump into the community here.
2: Right. Absolutely. And so also coming up in your in your home state is Slow Food Nations uh, coming up in Denver, yes. July 19th to 21st. Um, and Heritage Radio is going to be there. Um, not me, unfortunately, but <laughs> other people from the <laughs> network. Um and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, I saw you're speaking at a summit called the Innovative Farmer. Um, and interestingly enough, um, the other people involved in the summit, mm-hmm. there are two other previous Farm Report guests who are actually on the show in the past year, um, Bob Quinn and mm-hmm. Jack Algier. So it's just like, you know, a little Farm Report party that you're going to be <laughs> at. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I wanted to ask you, so it's called the Innovative Farmer. Um, what is that all about? What are the big things you're seeing in terms of farmer innovation that you plan on bringing to the conversation?
3: Yeah, so we, we I'm super excited for this panel, and we had a great conversation prepping for it recently, and all of us feel really fascinated and excited about this kind of tension and opportunity between what we think of as traditional farming methods as well as innovation and where the future of farming is headed. And so the group of us are all really excited to talk about different lessons that we've learned and both mistakes and failures and successes in terms of how we've tried something new and had it fail and then problem solved and done it differently and had it succeed, whether that is growing a certain type of crop uh, whether it's going back to some more ancient wisdom, but with a tweak, um, of, of how something is cultivated, whether it's exploring, uh, a new value-added product. I know Bob Quinn is excited to really talk about, um, the different value-added products and how he's kind of gone along his learning journey in thinking about how does he succeed, which he's, which, which he of course has done as a farmer and, and take things further up the value chain. So right. very similar to what we're talking about. So really, the, the group of us really talking about agriculture entrepreneurship and uh, that tension, excitement, relationship between innovative technologies and also learning from the past and using nature as design inspiration and kind of how those worlds come together.
2: Yeah. Is there an example of an innovative technology in farming right now that you're excited about?
3: You know, I... I am. I'm very curious and interested to watch how, especially in small scale farming, how we bring more efficiency and diversity and into small scale farming. And for example, I was just reading an article about a very very small, super energy efficient tractor that they're using mm. in Switzerland. And that tractor allows allows you to be doing uh, very diverse plantings next to each other versus where, of course, a lot of tractor use you have to. Uh, be focused on just one crop and the tools for that crop. And so I'm really interested how a tool like that, especially when whether it's a hand tool or a push, a push tractor or a, uh, you know, something that is using solar energy of how that can help create efficiency for small scale farmers and perhaps give them access to technology or tools that they haven't been able to afford in the past or just haven't, hasn't been able to make sense.
2: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I know um, Jack has the tractor at Stone Barns that that people get excited about. That it's like yeah, far- farmers can kind of build it themselves too, and um, yeah. So I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, tractor discussions. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, you brought up a few times um, the idea of regenerative agriculture, and um, I know that that's a word that. Biological capital uses a lot, and just in the past couple of weeks, I have been in many situations where the word regenerative is just being kind of thrown around yeah. so intensely in a way that I I'm sort of like, what are what are we even talking about? <laughs> um, and I, I guess I want to ask you, well, first of all, just what, it, what is regenerative? agriculture mean to you? And then are we are we like in this place where we're sort of in danger of it losing its meaning?
3: Yes, we are very much so. And I do fear <laughs> that similar to the term organic and the certifications around organic, that we're going to have a similar thing happen to regenerative. And for me, on a super simple level, regenerative is really important because we are no longer in a place where our food systems can be sustainable, we can no longer just expect to sustain how we currently grow food, sustain our current amount of topsoil, sustain our current amount of organic matter in our soils. We are obviously in a place where there is real urgency around us needing to build back up topsoil and build back up organic matter. And so for me, on a very basic level, regenerative is about putting more into the soil than we take out, I know that there is many different types of uses of the word, and at this point, even competing certifications. I do worry that it that at times using the word isolates uh, the farmers who are doing really good work. Uh, that that are not doing something under the definition of regenerative. And so I do think we have to be careful about how we use the term or how we make sure that there is a stepladder approach or financing or technical assistance to those producers who want to come along in that process of how do we at this point restore our, our soil so that we have soil in the future to be able to grow food. Um, And so I think it's a really interesting time right now with that word, and I think even what I've seen happen the last year, and I think what we'll see in the next year is a continued evolution of how the word is used, but I hope that more of us using that word can get together to be on the same page about both defining it, but then using that stepladder approach of helping to include others in that definition who need support and help in order to get to that place of using those practices.
2: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's just crazy to me how quickly this happened. Like, I, I feel like, yeah. you know, it's it's the organic has kind of evolved and, and people are question often you know sort of how strong what the word me it's used in a lot of different contexts now that took like it seems to me like a really long time and <laughs> generative, I feel like <laughs> I just like maybe heard it for the first time two years ago and all of a sudden it's it's just kind of everywhere it's like things just move faster now I think just with technology and um but but yeah I think I think just having having people define it more and more um like you said is is definitely just kind of going kind to of be important yeah <laughs> Um hearing you hearing you describe in a really simple way what it means to you like you know it it, it means that we have to rebuild the soil that and the system yep. that we can't just sustain yep. it i think that in it on its own is really helpful you know um yes so <laughs> we'll see what happens on that <laughs> front <laughs> going forward. Um, well, we have to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, if if people want to hear more about Biological Capital and, and find out more about your work, um, where, where would they go?
3: Yes. So our, thank you, great question. And our website is just www.biologicalcapital.com. And I also... Uh, people can be free to email me as well. My email is mhardie, H-A-R-D-I-E, at biologicalcapital.com. And I hope those listening who are able to are able to come participate in the Slow Food Nations Conference. Uh, it's going to be a really amazing collection of people and food and different cultures and great, important conversation about agriculture as well.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great talking to you.
3: Well, thank you, Lisa, and an honor to be on today with you all. Thank you.
2: Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week.
3: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.